In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. How an individual responds to a traumatic experience will vary. It's an interesting study of a human's response to fight or flight. Are there effective treatments for PTSD? What principles aid in the recovery from a traumatic incident? On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Susan Hannon to discuss post-traumatic stress. Welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. We have new social if you're interested in checking us out on Instagram, we're at RadGenPod, and even TikTok now, at RadGenPod. You can, you can contact me um, through my Twitter account, uh, at Dr. McFillin, and at our email account, at RadGenPodcast, at gmail.com. RadGenPodcast, at gmail.com. Yeah, and I'd like to say your TikTok videos, your dance routines are spot on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> Creating some good trends. So today's podcast is going to be hot. <laughs> you know why? It's, it uh, is 81 <laughs> degrees in the studio right now. We walked in here this morning, folks, and apparently our air conditioning went out in the entire building over the weekend. It's going to be 85 degrees and sunny. So most of our, our practice right now here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health is around 80 degrees. So it is going to be a really hot podcast. But we also got a great guest, too. Uh, I want to welcome to the podcast Dr. Susan Hannon. She is an assistant professor at Lafayette College, uh, a clinical psychologist, a researcher, and she is the director of research here at Center for Integrated Behavioral Health. Welcome, Dr. Hannon. Thank you so much for having me. So one of the things that I'm always interested when we bring on guests is just to learn a little bit about their backgrounds. So I'm going to start fairly general. What made you want to be a psychologist? Like, how did this, how did you get to this point? That's such a good question. And I feel like I've been thinking about that a lot more deeply recently. Um, I think I have always been interested in, like, really generally why people are the way they are. Um, and I think trauma in particular has really fascinated me because it's always just so interesting how two people could experience like seemingly on the surface, like identical events, right? Like let's say two people are in the same car accident and one person recovers from that accident. Maybe they have some distress for a short period of time immediately after the accident, but then they go on to like live their lives normally. Again, whatever normal means. Um, but then the other person who experienced that same accident uh, could just be like destroyed by that event mm. and their world is just shattered and it just is like this cascading um, like stress for a really long period of time. So yeah, that always, I think, really fascinated me. Um, when I was an undergrad, actually, at Kent State University, I was originally a journalism major. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, again, because I, I like interacting with people. I like just like understanding people's stories. Um, and I liked writing too. 
I thought that was a strength of mine. Um, so then, did, what did you see yourself doing? Like potentially print media? Yeah, or? yeah. Like writing for a newspaper. Um, so that investigative aspect. Exactly. Like that's kind of unique to psychologists too. Uh-huh. Because you're, you're, there's a story to be learned from all your clients. Mm-hmm. And it is investigative because you're trying to figure out all the complex factors that might lead somebody to respond differently like for your example yep the difference between uh, a reaction to a a car accident can be so vastly different yep and and it's even in my opinion in psychology like the investigative part is more rewarding because not like I'm not really the investigator it's like I'm trying to teach the skill of investigation to the client right Mm -hmm. like they're becoming their own investigator as to like why they reacted the way they did. Um, so yeah, back to the journalism stuff. Um, I started writing for the school newspaper and I realized like, oh, I don't actually like like chasing people down and mm. like trying to uh, like make people talk to me who don't actually want to talk to me. That <laughs> did not feel good. What is it, the intrusive nature <laughs> of it? Yeah. You don't yeah. want to be paparazzi? I don't <laughs> want to be paparazzi. No, oh my gosh, no. Um, and so psych was my minor at the time and I was really enjoying my psych classes, like specifically abnormal psychology. Um, and so I switched, I made psych my major journalism was my minor and yeah, there is still that like investigative component to being a psychologist, but it's just, it's like so much more than that. Yeah. So, so you're a, uh, an, a minor in psychology underground or did you just switch? It was major psychology, minor journalism. I, did, I flip-flopped. Okay. Did you consider being a clinical psych- psychologist at that time? I did. Yeah. Um, I was really influenced by, I, I think, a lot of the grad students that I knew at Kent. Um, most of my classes were taught by grad students. It's, just, it's fascinating for me to reflect on this because now I'm teaching at an institution that is, um, it's a small private liberal arts college and there are no grad students whatsoever. It's all just like pretty much full-time like PhD faculty. So yeah, my, as an undergrad, my experience was very different. And so I became very close to a lot of the grad students in the clinical psych program. And so like they absolutely had a heavy hand, I think, in influencing me and going into the clinical psychology route. And I'm so glad I did. Um, but yeah, I, once I switched my major, I realized, oh, there's there's not much I could do with a bachelor's alone in psychology that I think would be rewarding enough for me. So mm-hmm. I just like got the mindset of like, okay, I'm getting my PhD now. No, I thought you went into clinical psychology mm. growing up in Cleveland. okay we're gonna go down that road (laughs) well we 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 remember when we visited cleveland yeah (laughs) (laughs) we have a good friend of ours who's uh a huge Cleveland sports fan. Yeah. And so we would go to a couple Browns games. Uh he's a season ticket holder. And it's kind of a depressed area. Um the the greater Cleveland area. And I'm and I'm talking about the sports fans. Highly depressed. Um, and I thought <laughs> I don't know if depressed is the right word. It actually might be more like psychotic because <laughs> right, what's the definition of insanity? Like you do the same thing over and over and you expect different results, right? Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so like here are these brown fans like every year, like it's gonna be different. It's gonna be different and nothing's different. It's the collective conscience of the entire city. Things yeah. are just going to go bad. Yeah. No. Yeah. When we, we, we were at a game and actually the Browns were winning the entire time. Yeah. And uh, the one person sitting behind us wasn't as excited. And we look back at him and he's like, 
it's still the fourth quarter. Right. There's still know? 20 seconds and what left. And what happened? They ended up losing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you just get used to that. Yeah. Yeah. So you grew up in the Cleveland area. You're, but you're right. Maybe that was like a vulnerability factor to me. I thought it was just the, the attention to all the depressed people uh-huh. in the region. Isn't uh-huh. Cleveland like you the most... You might lose de- some Cleveland followers, by the way. <laughs> we love you, Cleveland. <laughs> Go Browns. Wolf, wolf. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us what happens then after your undergrad. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to get into uh, a grad program right out of undergrad and... Um, I mean that when I say lucky, like, yes, there was a lot of hard work that went into it, but there's so much luck that goes into getting into a PhD program because the pool is just so large and most schools, like the the incoming cohort is like eight students, seven students. So it is just like this, like kind of, um, I don't know, domino effect where like, yeah, you just kind of, you're lucky to get in. So yeah, I knew I wanted to study trauma um, and in particular work with trauma clients. And so I applied to programs that had a trauma focus. And so I ended up going to Northern Illinois University, which is about 60 miles west of Chicago um, in good old DeKalb, Illinois. Mm. Um, And I worked with uh, my fabulous advisor, Dr. Holly Orcutt, um, who's a, a trauma expert. Okay, so this we've had um, we had Dr. Jessica Taylor on not too long ago, fascinating interview, and she's from the UK, and she is a proponent of more of a trauma informed kind of perspective in mm-hmm. the mental health field. Um, to me, it's opposition to the medicalization of uh, human distress and struggle. Yet, I find myself. Um, hesitant or almost somewhat resistant to fully adopt a a trauma-informed model based on kind of what you said earlier. I I think that there are different responses or reactions to to trauma and then events kind of differ for for the individual. So there is a wide net in the trauma-informed movement about what can be considered traumatic. So like a parental divorce could be considered traumatic um, or even something as, uh, you know, as typical uh, as, as like a, a failure or struggle in, in life, an adverse event. But when you say trauma, I, I assume that you're referring to more of what is the established kind of clinical definition of, of trauma. Am I right? I am. Yeah. And I think that's a, a good point to differentiate. Um, and I do this with my clients and my students because um, I, I think the word trauma is used pretty loosely in our culture. It is. Right? Can, can you tell me what that standard definition is? Yeah. So, I mean, according to the DSM, and we all know that there's issues with the DSM, but at least like the way that we conceptualize trauma currently is like, it is a shock to the system. Mm-hmm. Like it is an event that um, you yourself, um, there was like a life threat to yourself. So risk of death or risk of um, physical injury, mm-hmm. uh, you witnessing someone else being killed, threat of being killed, threat of physical injury, um, any kind of sexual violence, rape, sexual assault, things like that, mm-hmm. um, natural disasters, war, combat. Um, but again, I think it's used um, uh, in in kind of our everyday language to mean just kind of like uncomfortable or like stressful. Like a student might say like, oh, that was a really traumatic exam. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can understand the intention where they're coming from, but I don't think they actually mean trauma. They aren't traumatized by it. It was just like really hard or really mm-hmm. stressful. And I'm not trying to downplay those events at all. It's just 
um, and, and Roger, I'd love to hear your, your take on this too. Like a, a trauma lives in the body differently than a like uncomfortable experience or a stressful experience. It's literally stored in the brain differently. Um, it changes our physiology. So I, I do particularly think it's important to distinguish between actual traumatic events versus um, like uncomfortable or stressful. Yeah. Cause events. I always think about world war one, world war two, mm-hmm. those trauma examples, people came back and they said, Oh, they're shell shocked. Yep. And it was just something that was accepted. Mm-hmm. Is that how PTSD treatment originated was during world wars and how people needed to recover? Cause there was some severe um, examples of, of PTSD with people unable to walk, yep. you know, wobbly legs falling down to the ground. Yep. And even, um, what's that great show? Peaky Blinders. I, I love that series. Great. There was a character in there who um, was shell-shocked. Yeah. And um, just it's a great series. You, you should watch it. Watch it with subtitles um, because it's a lot easier to follow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But no, I think you're right. I think, I think even today when a lot... I think the culture has changed a little bit, but when a lot of people think about PTSD, they do still think about war and combat mostly, um, which absolutely makes sense. If um, you are in a war, if you're in a combat experience, um, you're likely seeing trauma on a regular basis and can be traumatized from those events. Um, but then it it expanded into other types of like interpersonal events, such as sexual assault and rape. Um, and, and I think probably what in like the seventies or the eighties is when a lot more research on that came to light. Yeah. I I think when you start, um, understanding that there are, there are differences in how we react to situations that are life threatening or, you know, violate bodily integrity, it has like a profound reactionary response that survival, Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's, it's based on our own abilities to be able to continue to live and survive. And there is a natural kind of reaction to, to such an event. But even in um, situations like uh, combat or sexual assault, about 80% of survivors are still not going to respond with typical PTSD symptoms. Mm-hmm. So what do we know about those, those differences? Um, why, do, why are some people able to overcome such horrific tragedies? Um, and be able to recover while others kind of get stuck in it and then meet that criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such an interesting question. And I do just before like talking about that more, I think it is important for the listeners to yeah, really hammer home the point that if you experience a traumatic event, whether it's a car accident or a natural disaster or a sexual assault, experiencing, I wouldn't even call them symptoms, just like reactions following the event is completely normal. Like that is your body's way of processing this like unprocessable thing. Um, And so it's, you know, we want to be careful not to pathologize something that's not pathological. I think it, it only becomes, and I even hesitate to use the word pathological, but it only becomes that after I think months, right? Mm -hmm. Um, after the event and if someone is still struggling to um, kind of go back to their typical routines and lives and, and live a life that they value. Um, as to why some people get PTSD or experience PTSD and some people don't, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think there's so many factors that go into that. I mean, we do know that 
like type of trauma does seem to matter mm-hmm. and level of exposure. Yeah. So for example, when I was at uh, NIU, my graduate program, um, my advisor at the time was doing this longitudinal study on a mass shooting that occurred on the campus in, let's see, I started there in 2010. So I think it was two years before I was there in 20, 2008 and feeling bad for not remembering these details, but I think like five students were killed. Uh, The shooter committed suicide and I think like 20 some other students were wounded. So this was a mass event. Um, And probably not surprisingly, um, let me back up a second. So uh, my advisor was able to um, study a cohort of students who were there at the school at the time of the, the shooting and follow them longitudinally over time and assess like sim- like things like PTSD symptoms and, and other things. Um, so what they found, like one of the factors that contributed to PTSD the most was like a level of exposure to the shooting. So mm-hmm. the shooting happened in an auditorium. Um, so the students who were in the auditorium at the time who literally witnessed the shooting, witnessed students being killed and harmed, um, experienced the most distress compared to maybe a student who was um, in a building next door on lockdown. I'm not saying that the student who was in the building next door on lockdown couldn't have been traumatized by that. They absolutely could have and some were, um, but just the level of exposure definitely yeah. makes a difference. So the closer to the experience... And the, and the worse the experience is probably going to be um, positive correlation to anyone who's really going to experience a tra- trauma. Yeah, right. Because how it impacts your perception, right? Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. So were you studying these type of things while you were in the lab there? Mm-hmm. At, uh, what was some of the things that were going on at that, at that time for you that further kind of solidified this direction, this path for you? I mean, I think at that time, it already felt pretty solidified, which looking back is interesting to me. I've I've been doing a lot of reflection lately on my (laughs) life. And so I I definitely like had this script when I went into grad school of, okay, like I'm going to be a clinical psychologist. I'm going to probably work at a veterans affairs hospital because I was interested in PTSD and trauma. Did you always want to be a clinician? Yes. You did. So you knew you wanted to be a, a clinician. Yes. Did you want to balance that with academia and no. research? You just wanted to be a clinician. Right. Okay. Um, if you would have told second year Susan, oh, you're going to be on the tenure track in an academic position, you know, however many years out of grad school, I would have laughed at you. Um, <laughs> like that was not the path that I saw myself taking. So I had a pretty like now looking back, what I would describe as like a, a rigid script in my head of like the path that I was taking. Um, and then I started working at VA hospitals and I loved the clients. I loved the veterans. They were so complex. Um, and at the same time, just so mm, like beautifully wise and, um, had so much grit, like just keep going in the face of like so much adversity, I just really struggled in um, like the system of the VA, it being such a bureaucratic system and a lot of the um, rules and regulations that were being mandated were made by people who like, I don't even know if they stepped into a VA. I mean, that's judgmental of me. Maybe they had, but it didn't feel like it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
what what was the the initial question that you asked? I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think what I'm always interested in with anybody is um, were there any of these moments that uh, were inspirational and the said, evolution. This is the yes. It's okay. the evolution. So yeah. then I'm, I'm not going to say names of specific VA centers, but I've worked at quite a few. And there was one in particular where like, I, I felt like we were in the seventies in terms of patient care. Mm. Mm. And, um, it was a clinic that predominantly treated complex trauma, which we can maybe talk about that in a little bit. I had that um, as a question. Okay, cool. So when you say complex trauma, what do you mean? Um, when I say complex trauma, I think of trauma that typically starts early in childhood. Um, so it's like perhaps prolonged childhood abuse, mm -hmm. neglect, um, it's chronic. And, and, and that seems in my opinion to change the clinical presentation compared to if someone as an adult experienced like one single motor vehicle accident like yes you can become traumatized from that event but if you are someone who grew up um being or the threat of being abused daily for five ten years that that manifests in your body differently absolutely and you know what it's interesting because um our staff is bringing up questions like this um how do we treat complex trauma in comparison to a single event. Mm. And, um, you know, this is, the, this is the challenge of the field in where we have to evolve and, and grow because we use this one label, post-traumatic stress disorder, as if it's an umbrella term and it encompasses everybody, but there are so many varied differences. So when we look at risk factors for the development of PTSD, one of them is early exposure mm -hmm. to yeah. a, a traumatic incident. So if you learn that the world is dangerous, then it's very difficult for you to unlearn that. Yep. And uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is it's evolutionarily kind of ingrained in you to respond that way. So themes of, of trust and safety are so paramount because it's, it's a survival response. And the earlier you learn that, the stronger that, uh, that learning is for later survival. So uh, even if, if you're in a safe condition and even if you want to move your life into being able to feel safe and to love and to engage in the world again, it's very hard to kind of counteract what you've known for so long. Yep. Absolutely. So an, an individual that w um, experienced trauma at a young age would probably be would in complex trauma and experience it again later, they would be actually more difficult to, because of trust factor would be a lot more difficult to, to work with or to, you know, to treat. It takes longer. Like mm. that has been my experience. Yes. Because of what you're speaking to, it can take longer to build trust. Um, understandably so, right? Like Roger was just saying, if you start off with the belief system of the world is dangerous, I can't trust anyone. You are seeing the world through that lens. And so at any time a situation comes up that confirms that belief, you're like, yep, like I knew it. Right. So it, yeah, it's just, it, it, it takes longer um, and, it, and it's more complicated, I would say. Which is a challenge to the current kind of academic view of empirically validated treatments. And I'm a supporter of them. You know, I believe in that, in that movement. I, I believe we have to be able to identify mechanisms of action within, in, within treatments. And there's a number of researchers who have dedicated their careers and advanced the field in that. 
But the one area where I'm concerned about is we have these manual-based short-term treatments, and they're identified as empirically validated, but there's a, a number of people that that would never fit for, mm-hmm. right? You're never going to be able to effectively treat somebody in you know 16 to 20 sessions. And you might harm them by trying to force that. Oh, absolutely. Such a good point. And in if we're going to disseminate principles of, of, of change, we have to have this flexibility to understand how these mechanisms can be universally applied, but at a certain pace and rate and be able for it to be personalized. Unfortunately, when the majority of the treatment specialists, uh, at least in the United States, have master's level educations, I don't believe that they're provided the education on these empirically validated treatments, who they're meant for, and how they can be flexibly applied. And so they're automatically dismissed. Uh, and the, the research that, uh, that supports it is, is dismissed. And they have uh, an idea about what is effective treatment based more on theories or ideas or leaders or thought leaders or gurus or so forth. And we haven't been able to develop this kind of unified approach to treating PTSD or complex trauma. And you just see throughout the, throughout the world, you see these different ideas kind of pop up. And it just feels like we're in the infancy stages in, our, in clinical psychology and psychiatry how are we gonna how are we gonna overcome this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I think like doing things like this, right? Like this kind of like podcast or education or training center, um, I think is so valuable. Great plug. Uh, yes, yeah, Roger Payton to <laughs> say that. Um, I got you later. <laughs> it's it's so it's. Hmm. I mean, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but like most of in my opinion, most of the systems in which we're working in are pretty broken. Mm. Um, like the government's pretty broken. The VA is pretty broken. Like the pharmaceutical industry is pretty broken. And so, and, and this is actually something that I want to talk about later with like um, uh, psychedelic treatments for mm. PTSD. I, anyway, we'll talk more about that later. But yeah, so I think I'm a little mm, pessimistic of... Like, how do we change these things in such a broken system? Like, that's why I struggled at the VA because, and, and so I can understand that the demand at the VA, like there were just not enough resources. There were not enough clinicians who could treat the number of veterans that were distressed and needed to be seen. And so we were forced to have like 12 sessions limits. So like I literally could only see veterans for 12 sessions, even if they had you know, complex trauma. That's infuriating. So it's a supply demand issue. And then there's such constraints on the system that when you start making progress with somebody, you have to abandon treatment. If you start making progress with somebody. In a sense. Yeah. And I, a part of it too was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the reputation of the VA, like that, like I think leaders wanted the the VA to be seen as like, look, we're getting in veterans very quickly. Our mm. wait lists aren't that long. Yeah. Um, okay, how you have shorter wait lists is by shortening the treatment for mm. the people that need it. And so I think that was a big contributing factor as to why we had such um, strict limits on how long we could see patients. And a lot of people jump ship. Because of that, because of you, you saw, 
like this is not working. Mm -hmm. Um, that was the second to last VA I was at. And then the the third and final one. Um, yeah, like, like I was saying earlier, I just felt like the treatment was in the seventies, just the way that, um, providers talked about clients, like calling them crazy and dramatic. Um, and not in my opinion, not being open to a conversation about how that pejorative language could be damaging. Like, even if you aren't saying it to the client themselves, if you yourself are calling a client crazy, mm. like that is likely going to be impacting your mm-hmm. view of them. Yeah. Culture matters. Yes. Right? And um, the type of people that you have working in a system are critically important, especially leadership. And that's why we've been pretty outspoken about the, you know, the current categorization of mental health conditions from a from a medical perspective and, and trying to be able to alter or change language when when you validate someone's experience and how they're feeling and what they're thinking makes sense based on what they've been through however it's just kind of a mismatch between from what they went through to where they are now it's it's so much less pejorative um and you take those labels off and you just understand something from an adaptation perspective. Mm-hmm. And really, it, it lets people kind of just lower their guard down. Like, you understand me. Because of course you're going to feel this way given what you've been through. And I think when we talk about principles and being able just to first help somebody who's been through these experiences, the first thing is they have to decrease kind of the judgment of what they're going through. Mm-hmm. They have to change a relationship to how they're thinking and feeling because if they think that they are crazy for thinking what they're thinking or feeling what they're feeling or they um, and, and they judge it as an illness, well, then all the all the steps are, are in place for them to kind of remain stuck in that in that presentation. But an acceptance of it, an understanding of it and creating a therapeutic environment where that's validated, it will provide people the opportunities to kind of now begin to see things differently because trust is such an issue. Yep. And that's so, yeah, it's so interesting that we're talking about this. So yeah, at that particular clinic, it was very much the medical model and we had a psychiatrist on staff and I think virtually all of the patients were on probably multiple medications and and patients were labeled as sick. Like X is very sick. And so it's, that's actually why looking back, this is kind of, Uh, interesting to me now, but that's actually why I went into academia because I was like, well, I clearly can't change this system because like, like when you're in it, you can't change it. Right. Um, or at least it feels that way. And so I thought, okay, like if I can get like at least some of the younger generation Mm. to think about this a little bit differently, um, and to have more compassion and, and like to move away from this medical model, like maybe that's where I can make a change because I just felt like in, at least in the VA system, um, I as an individual could not make change. And, and maybe that was just my own faulty perception. I don't know. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it was a formative experience yeah. at the VA where you began to shift away from b- wanting to be a full-time clinician to yep. seeing where else you can make an impact in the greater field. Yep. Okay. Yep. So this whole idea when you were with the VA and you said broken system, because I'm a huge... I think every single system that we have is broken. And I just have this theory that it's just so much easier to politicize things and to say, well, we have numbers. So for example, the education system, I think at this point has is, is been broken. There are things that need to change. 
it sounds to me like there's a, there's a similar problem with this kind of like factory line mentality. Yeah. We take in numbers, we just do this, and then they're out. And as long as we can, can prove that, well, we have this many numbers and look at how many people right. exited the VA, but, the, but the, no one ever focuses on the outcome. No one ever allows differentiation per patient, right? I mean, one person could take years of therapy. One person could take, you know, weeks of therapy. It seems like they're just treating every single patient identically. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I would say that was my understanding of it. Uh, there was maybe flexibility in that you could have like one extra session with someone or two extra sessions. Jeez. And and I do want to be clear, there there absolutely were some patients who got better. Like I don't want right. to completely yeah. demoralize. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, there were a lot of patients who um, d- did succeed in that system. Um, and there were a lot that didn't. Yeah, back to that, uh, I guess, factory kind of uh, approach is like the assembly line. Mm -hmm. And we see this in even medical treatments, um, like when we're talking about vaccine efficacy and and so forth. It's just widespread like medical intervention as if it fits everybody. And it's, uh, it it moves us further away from personalized medicine and in in our field, personalized uh, therapy. So that's why I like to think about things as, as core principles and I do think there's core principles of human resilience and recovery just for us to evolve to this, to this point. Um, but before we get into that, um, mm-hmm. I'm interested to know like what happened f- uh, after the VA, what was next for you in, in your career? And was there any research that you were, you were doing either in your graduate school programs or while you were at the, the VA that, that you were able to contribute to the field? Yeah. So, uh, in graduate school for my dissertation, I, again, like going back to this idea of like, how is it that two people can experience seemingly similar events and have such wildly different outcomes? Um, I, I, I got really interested in this concept of emotion regulation, right? So just how we as humans regulate all of the internal stuff. Like that is not something that, like we are not born with that knowledge, right? Like you don't have to be taught how to feel fear or surprise or joy. Um, but I don't think we're born with the understanding of how to regulate those things or Mm. like what to do when sadness is present or what to do when excitement is present. Um, and so, yeah, for my dissertation, I looked at, um, different emotion regulation strategies among trauma survivors. And these were undergraduate students at the college who just experienced like a host of different traumatic events. So I wasn't looking at one trauma in particular. Um, And what we found was that if you could flexibly use different emotion regulation strategies, whether it's um, reappraising a situation. So mm, this is kind of a reductionist way to think about it, but kind of like putting a positive spin on it. Um, or distraction, right? Like not really engaging in whatever stimuli is present in front of you. If you could flexibly use different strategies, you're more likely to have better outcomes than if you are tied to one strategy, Mm. Um, which is interesting, right? Because I, I think over maybe the past 10 or 20 years, some of these emotion regulation strategies have gotten a bad rap like suppression or distraction. Like you should never use those things. They're bad. Why are they getting a bad rep? Um, I think if let's, so like if, if, 
if I'm only suppressing my emotions, that probably isn't going to be the most effective thing for me long term. Hey, I beg to differ. (laughs) (laughs) Do you agree, Roger? I mean, how's he doing? (laughs) Well, Sean will just have these panic attacks out of the blue. And uh, I I think that's a that's related to his um, suppressing of his emotional experience. I try to engage him in these conversations. I imagine things as a dark ball. I push it down and it goes away. And then it comes up in the form of panic, right? And like terror. No, no, it does not. (laughs) (laughs) So wait, no, great point. All right. So what what you're saying is that that there are varied ways to cope with a situation depending on the circumstance and the situation. And it's that depending on the situation, depending on the context, right? Like being able to read the room, read the situation, and then choose a skill accordingly that seems to be the most effective versus just giving these like generic labels of good or bad to one strategy or another. So for some of that, is it intuitive for some individuals and others need to learn it because they haven't had any exposures at a young age or any opportunities to build up some type of coping skill? That's such an interesting question. The intuitive part I don't, I don't know if I know how to answer that. Like, is it like, would a three or four year old just like know uh, intuitively, like maybe I need to take a deep breath here. Like it depends where their soul is in the uh, reincarnation process. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, don't knock that. (laughs) I would think there'd have to be some, a little bit of intuition though, because just now we'll go back to my kids sports. There are certain kids that will respond very well to adversity others don't and i don't know that that was necessarily taught to them i think there's some intuition to um to emotion what the emotion they feel and then the response to that emotion i have great examples of that when we were younger um like when there were some difficult situations in our lives i always responded like very calmly and <laughs> tried to support when fa- sean when you found out that sean was your brother but <laughs> but he would respond like in a, a rageful way. He used to throw these metal coasters at my head running up and down the stairs. I did. That's very true. <laughs> it's because he pushed that dark ball down. And right. Kelly, be- can I ask you real quick? Yeah. So how do you know that they did not, those those kids didn't learn it? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I think I'm, I, I'm, there's part of an assumption there, but based off of my own children and then the way that, you know, we raise our children, we try to teach coping. Yep. Um, sometimes not always in a very effective way, but I think most parents are probably going to do that. But I do think there are moments that, that are unteachable, like, you know, like you can't, and then sometimes they happen in a game. Sometimes it might happen on a playground and just seeing some of these kids and the way that they react. Some kids are kind of like, they, they shrug it off. They're okay with moving on. Other kids will just focus on whatever happened, whether it be a little negative experience and they will let it fester, you know, and, I just, so maybe there's some, there's some intuitive quality to that genetic quality perhaps. And I do. Yeah. So I'm glad you bring that up. I do think it, it, it in part too has to do with our emotion sensitivity, which was probably discussed on an earlier podcast, like the DBT podcast or, or episode, um, I should say, where I, I think we think that is like biologically driven, like in, like an instinct almost, um, like temperament, right? It's like something that you're born with. So sure, I can imagine if there is a child who is highly emotionally sensitive, so it's just through no fault of their own, they're just more reactive to things and they feel their emotions more strongly than most other kids that, yeah, that then that, that absolutely would influence their 
but then that'll influence the uh, the outside resources too, because yep. again, in education, we've gone over this a million times in this podcast. Anybody at a young age that experiences emotions strongly, uh, oftentimes are going to be taken down to the counselor's office, or yep. the parents are going to say, "There's something wrong with my child." And it's like, well, they're just experiencing an emotion, like they're they're crying, they're ups, they're sad. Um, you know, I. I see it differently because I've learned on this, yeah. right, on this podcast, but I'm assuming that maybe the general audience may not, they might feel the same way. Like, why is my child doing this? Mm-hmm. Well, what's, what's interesting in the developmental field of psychology is there's this concept of goodness of fit with parenting. So what that basically means is the temperament of your child is it a, is a good fit with basically the temperament of the parents. So if somebody is born emotionally sensitive, highly reactive. How do the, do the parents respond to that? Now, if they respond in a punitive way, that kind of invalidation of that experiment, of that experience seems to impair later development of emotion regulation skills. But yet if you have parents who um, validate that emotion and um, have a, a very soothing or nurturing kind of reaction to that, with teaching them how to how to respond in more effective ways, the development the developmental path seems to be different. So going back to that assembly line approach in the public school system, for example, each kid is going to enter into that classroom with different temperament, varied experiences, and varied personality. So if you te- if you teach to each kid as if they're the same, or you run your classroom as if it's each kid is the same and they should be obedient in a certain way. You're leaving a number of kids behind and we're not nurturing them based on what their, um, their talents are and what, and their natural abilities being brought into the world. And like, what, what even is effective emotion regulation? Like who gets to decide that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yep. Like who gets to decide, like you did that well, like you suppressed that ball of panic, Sean, like congratulations, <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it's fascinating to think yeah, about. I, we need those in the world because those are the people that find healthy ways of letting out those emotions in the form of music and art and writing and all those things that make our entire world interesting. Mm-hmm. Diversity. To, yeah. Mm-hmm. To kind of push it down and say, no, you have to be this cog in the wheel to me is like, ugh. Well, yeah. I, I feel like people don't like embracing the complexities of the world because the, it's messy. And I think that's why you have factory line mentality in most systems because there is then rules, right? This is what you do. This is what you don't do. But yet we all agree that mm. it's, it's a complex system. Education, people learn differently. Well, yeah. why are we forcing them to learn all the same? We know that that's wrong. Even the people that, you know, um, create a common core know that it's wrong, but yet it's still a system and we have an outcome so we can have numbers and data and, and things like that. So let's drive the, the conversation then back to the treatment of people who've been exposed to traumatic events. If we know that there are, there's great diversity in personality and experience, then we also have to have great diversity in how we respond. In dialectical behavior therapy, we always talk about effectiveness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're referring to. Like when, No matter what you choose or how you choose it in response to a situation, we're going to talk about it in terms of effectiveness. There's no right. There's no wrong. Is it effective? So I might have one client who experiences a trauma memory or an intense emotional reaction in a moment, might use a coaching call, and they're trying to prevent binge eating or turning to alcohol or drugs. So 
using a distract technique for a period of time might be highly effective in being able to get through that urge. But at another point in our therapy, if we're going to treat a, a trauma, a PTSD reaction, we know that like exposure to the memories and being able to make room for the emotional experience and process it seems to be highly effective, adaptive, and allows people to recover. Yep. Yep. But yeah, it goes back to at least for a long time, there's like comfort in labels, right? Like, well, we can just group these things as good and these things as bad and we'll just stay away from the bad things. We'll stay away from the suppression. But you're like, that's just not how the world works or people work. Yeah. Uh, well, we're trying to, um, we're trying to use these categories or these labels to create some form of order in our system. And there's safety in order. There's safety in rules. But I think, uh, you know, we kind of sold our souls in a, in a lot of ways by aligning with that medicalization mm. of the human experience to where we are right now in the modern mental health care system that at the expense of understanding human diversity um, and creating kind of flexible, principle-based approaches, we've gone in the opposite direction. You're in academia now. You grew up in the PhD program and, and, and research and the, and the DSM. And then you went into, you went into the VA, which kind of works from that model. Mm -hmm. What has been the downside to, to that? And let's get a conversation going about what the future could look like. The downside to like the medical model, the current model as, as you see it. Um, I mean, so as I, like, I, I don't adhere to the medical model like at all anymore. So when you say, as I see it, like not like how. All right. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Do you have to diagnose your patients with major depressive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder? Uh, for insurance purposes. Yes. Then you adhere to the model, right? I, I play the game. <laughs> I play the game of the system that I, I have to, right? Yeah. Because um, you can't treat someone without a diagnosis. If they are like using insurance or, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, there's CPT codes. You, you have to, to, <laughs> you have have to, to learn code. to work within the system. Right. Yeah. But then there's how you communicate it to your patients. Right. Okay. And I think that's what you're saying. Right. Um, how, okay. how do you, you communicate it to your your patients, if you're not going to work within those labels. I mean, so like with PTSD, I don't even think about that as a disorder. I think about that as a disruption in recovery. Explain. Right. I like that. Yeah. So most people who experience a traumatic event, like we said earlier, are going to experience some, again, I don't even want to call them symptoms, but some reactions to that trauma um, so, for example, I had a friend who was in a really bad car accident um, a few weeks ago, a bad head-on collision, and she um, is experiencing some reactions to that, understandably so. Like, she could have died. Mm -hmm. um, that is not pathological, right? Again, that is the body's way of trying to process this awful thing that happened. And so it makes sense that when, you know, if she tries to get in the car a few days after, her body's going to be like, what are you doing? This almost killed us. Like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, because the body doesn't know that 
that was a different situation and mm. that like it's not going to happen every time just so, a natural alarm system in the body exactly yeah and and again with trauma like we were saying earlier it really is stored in the brain differently um it's stored as a conditioned response um and so like when that fight flight freeze system is activated um and it's that alarm center is blaring it, it just gets tagged in the brain as like, this is important. You need to remember this next time for survival. Um, so it absolutely makes sense that people are going to be anxious and feel fear. Um, but then over a period of time, uh, the individual and the body learns like, okay, for this example, like I can get in a car again. Um, this is safe. Um, trauma isn't around every corner. And so most people go through that kind of process where they may experience a trauma, um, experience some symptoms or experiences after that for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then they naturally recover from those symptoms. There's nothing pathological about that. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you some questions here because I know how uh, some of the followers of this podcast or the followers, uh, you know, for me on Twitter are going to are going to ask some questions. They're going to say, okay, that's a, that's a car accident. But what if I was repeatedly sexually abused by a caregiver over this period of time? Do the same kind of principles apply? Mm. That's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, they're never like, if it's repeatedly happening there, there is no like time for the body to process that. And there, and, and almost like you don't want the body to because they're still in a state of danger, right? So those, quote, symptoms that they're experiencing are might actually be helping keeping that person alive, right? Like the hypervigilance, the dissociation, whatever it might be that they're experiencing. So I would argue even that, like, while trauma is happening, those responses are not pathological. Um, so you can't treat PTSD when somebody's still in a dangerous situation. No. Mm. No, I, how, how, because it's not post, right? It's post-traumatic stress. So you're still in a traumatic stress. (laughs) You're still in it. Yeah. And then once you're out of it, it doesn't necessarily like mean that the person feels like they're safe now and everything's okay. The way that they've now evolved and what they've learned are predicting, well, there's another dangerous situation right around the corner Mm -hmm. or the brain is trying to figure out how did I get into that position in the first place? Mm -hmm. What can I do to prevent it? What can I do to get out of it? Who can I trust who I can't trust and so forth? Right. And so we, right. For some people, they're like following that kind of trauma like their lives just become so, so small, right? They almost become agoraphobic, understandably so, because of what happened to them, right? It's like, well, I'm not going to leave my house because that, like, trauma could happen at any time and I can't trust anyone, so what's the point of talking to anyone? Mm, what's the point absolutely. of forming a relationship? Um, I, I've got a, I'm sorry. No, 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 please, 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 please. Uh, you, you said something that made me think, uh, when someone experiences a traumatic event, there's, like, there needs to be a healing afterwards, so if someone experiences a traumatic event, are they, would you say they're more vulnerable to having a reaction in other situations um, immediately after that event? Are there, is there like a fragility that needs to heal over time where that resilience starts building up again? When you say other situations, can you just give me an example? I'll, I'll use the, 
the veteran example. Mm-hmm. So come back from uh, war, mm-hmm. you have the, the shell shock, quote unquote, and a car backfires mm-hmm. and you have a reaction. So does that push you back down or does that help build up your resilience of exposure over time to things that you realize are no longer threats? Yeah, I think that like the car backfiring is an experience that happens Mm -hmm. and then it's the interpretation of that event that can impact the individual. Does that make sense, Roger? Like, so, you know, let's say uh, a veteran who uh, comes back, they're, you know, driving on the highway and they hear the car backfire. Um, If they then interpret that to be dangerous and say, oh, okay, I'm just not going to drive anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, or it happens a few times and they decide like, this is just too much. I can't handle this. I can't handle the anxiety that I feel when this happens. So I'm just, I'm not going to drive. I'm just going to stay home more. Um, I think that's when it turns into, and again, I hate to use the word pathology, but that's when it becomes more pathological mm-hmm. versus someone who, and this is hard to do. Like, I don't want to underscore how absolutely hard this is to do, but versus someone who hears the car backfiring feels anxious, acknowledges the anxiety for what it is, um, and then continues to move forward. And you say that's hard though. Acknowledges. Can you just explain that? Like how does a person acknowledge the anxiety? Is it like a thought process where they go, they you know, like they 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 kind of freeze up and then there's that the sense of anxiety, but then they consciously are thinking of going through steps like, oh, well, it was just the car backfiring. You're going to be okay. Is that what you mean by the acknowledgement? Sure. It could be that, or just even like the willingness to be in your body with the anxiety. Right. I think so many, I mean, myself included, like I don't enjoy feeling anxiety and I certainly will avoid it sometimes. (laughs) And that's like stupid anxiety, you know, and it's like nothing compared to a a traumatic experience. And so, yeah, I think it could be just the willingness to have it as well as the like rationalization of it, right? Like the compassion of like, okay, it makes sense why I'm feeling this way. It reminded me of my experience back in Iraq or wherever the the individual was. And it's important that we understand that anxiety is there to serve us. So when you feel anxious, it's your body's threat detection mechanism. So a lot of people who've been through traumatic events, whenever they're feeling anxious, are anticipating that something bad could happen. And part of the healing or recovery process is being able to learn just because I feel anxious doesn't necessarily mean something bad is about to happen. Because in order to live fully, you now have to live with anxiety. It's not something that goes away quickly. It's not a, a symptom that when you start the recovery process just disappears. In fact, you're learning to live fully in safe situations with that anxiety. And we all have the capabilities to, to learn. I mean, that's the, the beautiful thing about human evolution is that our brains are so malleable. And at one point, it can be attentive to something that in some way signifies danger. And then once we process it and think it through, as we're exposed to the world, we can understand that the world is safe under these conditions and I can live fully there. Yeah. And if this is going to like change the convo too much, let me know. But going off of what you were saying, um, particularly with folks who have experienced um, like interpersonal trauma, like rape or sexual assault or like prolonged childhood abuse, I think there's a lot of 
um, guilt and shame that gets wrapped up into that, that just makes things so much more complicated. Like, can we just talk about that for Absolutely. a little bit? Um, were you going to say something? Well, we're entering into that conversation about kind of what works. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I'd like to go there. And mm-hmm. what we've learned. Mm-hmm. And this is where I really want to be able to rely on your expertise mm-hmm. of this because there are some effective treatments that we've been able to identify, but there's components of those treatments. Yeah, I mean, so when... I- like the treatment that I think of in particular, especially for someone who has like higher amounts of guilt or shame and I I like unjustified guilt and shame um, is cognitive processing therapy, um, which was developed by Dr. Patricia Rizek um, back in the eighties. I think it comes from cognitive theory and cognitive therapy, really like Beck's cognitive model and even Jean Piaget, right? Like, So, um, hmm, where do I want to start with this? So we all have schemas, like mental frameworks for understanding the world, right? So like if we go to a grocery store, uh, like if we've been there before, we typically know what to do. Like you grab a card if you need it, you peruse the aisles, grab food, go to the checkout pay, and then you leave. And so then if you go to a new grocery store in a, a state that you're vacationing in, you're not like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Like you, you have the framework for that, mm-hmm. right? Um, for trauma, like I think we really have like a schema for what trauma is, right? So that when we experience it, that's what I mean when I say it's like a shock to the system. It's like the brain and the body are like, where do I put this? Like, what do I do with this? And so it, the mind will do whatever it can to try and explain how and why this thing happened. And so particularly with interpersonal trauma, like a sexual assault or a rape, oftentimes survivors will interpret that as, well, like this was my fault somehow. Like I could have done something to prevent this. Um, I, now that I'm in academia, I do more research on um, like campus sexual assault. Um, And so, you know, a lot of students will say, like, I shouldn't have gone to that party. Like, I shouldn't have worn what I was wearing. I shouldn't have drank so much. Um, Because if I didn't do those things, then the trauma wouldn't have happened. The assault wouldn't have happened. And that just layers on all of this unjustified shame and guilt where now the individual, mm, like, really isn't seeing the trauma through like the lens of reality anymore right Mm -hmm. um so a a treatment like cognitive processing therapy helps clients understand or even like identify or think about like their own um worldviews and like perceptions um so there's there's this idea of what's called the just world belief i know roger has heard of that but like sean and kelly have you guys heard i have not It's this idea that um, like generally good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Like the world is inherently universally just. Uh, Like where do you think that belief comes from? The Bible. Religion. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. What? Any other sources? Jeez, I don't know. I mean, Pam, growing up, I mean, our parents always kind of led us to believe that if we would do good things, good things would happen. We've had, we've had that conversation growing up, be a good person and good things will happen to you. Right. And it makes sense. I think, um, 
like when you're a kid, if you're a parent and you're like trying to shape behavior, it's like, oh, like I want little Roger to like clean the dishes. And so, um, Roger, if you do this, like you'll get a reward, but then there's like sometimes this other layer of like, that means you're a good person, right? Instead of like, he was never a good person. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, instead of like, if you do this thing, this will happen. There's another layer of that makes you a good person, right? So like you got this treat because you were a good boy that cleaned the dishes versus you got a treat because you cleaned the dishes right. or you went to timeout because you did something bad. So like underneath it, it's like you're a bad person. So and, and it's like I think we all do this. Like it's it's just so like inherent in our language and our culture. I will say that with parenting right now, they're trying to get away from that. Like there are things that are expected that you always have to do and to not reward everything that should just be. Like my wife is reading books. I am not. And she keeps telling me. I was going to say, who's they? Yeah. <laughs> There's something <laughs> called like the rye method. I, I, I don't know enough about it to talk about it. But I think it's trying to overcome some of that good and bad. Yeah. Aren't, it's not good or bad. It's, yeah. You need to be doing these things. And if someone is doing something bad, it's trying to understand why they're acting that way, recognize and acknowledge how they're feeling, and then work through it, not punishing them. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's exciting to hear. Yeah. I mean, but we all can relate to this just world belief, right? Whether through our parents, through teachers, through religion, um, it's just very pervasive in our culture. And so when something really bad happens to us that we cannot explain and can't even process, we might start thinking, well, maybe I'm a bad person. Like maybe this is some kind of karmic event. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Maybe I'm damaged or broken in some way because how else can I explain it, right? So once you go down that thought process, then it just goes deeper and deeper, mm-hmm. right? Then you're starting to fall. Well, and then, right. And so then you just start seeing the trauma through the lens of it was my fault. Right. I'm bad, right? And that's where thoughts come up of, well, if I wouldn't have drank so much, this wouldn't have happened. Or if I wasn't wearing that outfit, this wouldn't have happened. And 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 people understandably like fail to un- to comprehend that like there's no risk factor that can force someone to perpetrate a crime mm. right yeah mm-hmm. like it doesn't sure maybe drinking can put you at risk but that you being drunk doesn't force someone to assault you right it has no bearing on the other person's actions exactly and they were going to mm-hmm. do it no matter what exactly mm-hmm. there's this inherent search for kind of control that yeah. we all have yep as as human beings. And so one of the ramifications of somebody who has been exposed to such a traumatic event and might hold on to some of those beliefs, those self-beliefs that, you know, it is their fault or there's something they could have done to prevent it is they almost systematically begin to set up their life in a very controlled way to try to prevent that. And this development of like obsessive and compulsive behaviors, like if I do these behaviors, I'm safe today. You know, it has this reduction of fear. And now and this is my concern with the current healthcare system, you might present to a physician or you might pre- present to a therapist with what would be called obsessive compulsive disorder, right? As if it's discreet and it's unique and it's its own medical illness. And it would take so much time and such a relationship to learn that those behaviors were developed in response to a traumatic event. Mm. And they're using all these behaviors as a way to stay safe. But if we view it in isolation without understanding the entire story, you're actually providing the wrong care, the wrong treatment. 
you're not providing any care. Well, that leads argue. to an yeah. interesting question then. How often are you treating someone who doesn't or is not aware they experience a traumatic event? Is this just a Hollywood thing that happens? Or do you uncover over the course of conversations that they experience something and you're like, well, that is an event that could be traumatic. And they come to this realization that everything stemmed from that. From my experience, that typically doesn't happen. Okay. I mean, I... It's a Hollywood thing. Yeah, like the idea of repressed memories. I mean, I think there's so much about like the brain and the mind that mm-hmm. we still don't understand. Um, and so like, could someone repress a trauma? Like, sure, I think it's possible. But mm-hmm. in, uh, I think 100% of, of the folks that I've treated for PTSD, that, like the trauma is the most vivid thing that mm. they remember. Okay. And they're initially coming in because they don't want to remember it okay. anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, I, I've heard some people talk about memory and how memory is flawed. Mostly when it comes to like court cases and eyewitnesses. And um, the story I heard was there was someone who teaches a course about eyewitnesses and um, they often debate for the first 35 or 40 minutes to have a conversation about memory. And what this particular instructor does is he has armed people come in, grab somebody from the room and drag them out and then ask the, the room to describe the individuals, how many there were and what happened. And they almost all get it wrong mm-hmm. because memory is flawed. And that's been my experience. So I, I wonder if through the event of an experience that could be traumatic, are we not remembering it the way that it happened and we're amplifying it and making it more. And I'm not talking about a sexual assault. I'm talking about like a car accident or a moment where maybe um, there is a shooting. So and the, the, I feel like I was closer to it than the details really are enhanced. Yes, yeah. yes, okay. yes. I, thank you. I have something to say about that. I know you do. So you go ahead. No, go ahead, Roger. Well, there's, there's this kind of con- consolidation of memory. I think the best way to think about this is that we have a survival brain. So when we're facing something that is, is life threatening, we are going to kind of consolidate all our energy in, in an area to focus on what is most imminent in order to survive. So a lot of details that are extraneous or not relevant to survival in that moment, our brain is not going to, to attend to and focus on that stimuli. So I, I don't look at it as like there's an inherent flaw. I think I look at it as this is what we were designed to do. We've evolved this way. And so there are certain mechanisms in place in the fight or flight response that are going to enhance fight mm-hmm. or flight at the expense of other cognitive skills. Okay. And I think just from a treatment perspective, um, like if we are asking someone to recount the details of their trauma, like me, Susan, as a therapist, I don't, it doesn't matter if you get a detail wrong or right, or if you remember it wrong or right, whatever that is, even is, it's like, are you able to be present with that memory, experience all of the really difficult emotions that are coming up and thoughts and judgments and just be there for it? So mm-hmm. I understand in like a judicial system, like the, those details maybe matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least for us in treatment, it's if, if, the, if the narrative changes, 
slightly, more than slightly from week to week, like, okay, that's the experience today, Mm -hmm. but it's how are you reacting to it? How are you sitting with the things that are coming up? Because that is a risk factor for the development of PTSD is your relationship to your own experience. So how you cope matters. If you are somebody who is coping through suppression or, uh, or distraction, any avoidance mechanism tends to maintain the development of the, of the symptoms and really effective therapy exposes you to that situation, uh, in a safe environment in order to attend to details, emotional experiences that facilitate this learning and recovery process. It's so interesting. Avoidance is listed as, uh, a symptom in the DSM. There's 20. Avoidance? It's the, well, there's 20 symptoms of, of PTSD according to the DSM. I mean, that's just garbage, mm. but it's, 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 it, but how could it be a, sip, a symptom if it's a reaction to the symptoms, right? So I conceptualize avoidance as not necessarily a symptom. It's like how you're managing the symptoms and it makes so much sense, right? Like when we're scared of something, like if you're terrified of spiders, you're not going to approach spiders. And Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to compare a a spider phobia to a trauma, by the way, but just Mm -hmm. to like make the point. Um, So like avoidance is very natural because of the survival mechanism that we have. Unfortunately, if you only use avoidance to manage those symptoms over the long term, um, that's, it's, it's likely maintaining the symptoms because you're not, you're not processing, you're not learning something new. Great transition. Yeah. A quiver of skills that need to be learned. Yeah. This is a great transition point to another principle. So you were mentioning cognitive processing therapy and you know, the value of that, of that learning and how in a safe therapeutic environment, you can increase your awareness and understanding of a situation and think about it differently to decrease that unjustified guilt and shame. But now we're actually kind of transitioning into another component of an effective therapy um, that was really researched and developed um, by Edna Foa. <laughs> Edna Foa, um, <laughs> prolonged exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do we know about that component of recovery? Yeah, I mean, I I feel like he, I I can talk about like the original Foa model, and then I feel like you have more current experience with the like inhibitory learning stuff yeah. but yeah so are, are you guys familiar with pavlov's dogs mm-hmm. yes. that experiment yeah yes. right so like the conditioning over time that's how many, i raise my children perfect <laughs> yeah I'm, they're gonna turn out great yeah thank you uh, <laughs> uh, over like many repeated trials if you pair a noise like the ringing of a bell and then present the dog with food um, the dog is naturally going to salivate to food, right? That is an unconditioned response. You don't have to teach the dog how to do that, to drool in response to something it finds delicious. Um, but what was surprising at the time um, was that researchers found that the dog can, can salivate to the sound of a bell alone, even in the absence of food, if you pair that sound with the food over many repeated trials. And so we actually see something like similar happening in the brain with post-traumatic stress disorder where someone experiences a trauma, let's say, just for the sake of the example, a a car accident, and everything in the environment at the time can become intimately paired with that trauma reaction, that fight or flight freeze response. So like a song that they're listening to on the radio, maybe they're drinking coffee, 
um, while they're driving or uh, the smell of the car, right? Um, the body doesn't know to differentiate like, oh, the trauma was like the accident itself versus like other things in the environment that were going on. And so then later on, when someone is maybe just like at the mall going about their business shopping and they hear that same song that was on when the um, in the car when the accident happened, like all of a sudden they're having this trauma reaction, that fight or flight response. It feels like you're having a panic attack and they're like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. Like it, it could be terrifying because you feel like you're going crazy. I've got a great example of how this is applied in the real world Please. for non-traumatic events, but in the world of marketing and advertising and they're mnemonics. So every time you hear a commercial, it's got like a jingle. And the best example right now is Taco Bell where they do that dong and the person stops what they're doing and walks into a Taco Bell to get a taco. So I'm hungry. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we stole that and we applied it into the advertising world to manipulate people to want more tacos. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Taco Bell. <laughs> We're all about health here. Get your cheesy gordita crunch. <laughs> Those are good. Um, but right, so... All, like any of our senses, what we're hearing, what we're smelling, what we're tasting, any of that can then become paired with that trauma response so that later on when the individual experiences those things, it's like they have that trauma reaction again. Um, and it, it makes sense why someone would want to avoid something that invokes that fear reaction. But what's happening later on is that the fear reaction is happening outside the context of trauma, right? It's almost like a, a faulty alarm system now. But if you keep interpreting the situation as traumatic, right? The body is never going to learn like, okay, I actually am safe. Like I can go shopping at this mall or I can get back in the car. Or I can drink this coffee. Like nothing bad is going to happen. Nothing traumatic is going to happen. Um, and so part of prolonged exposure is, mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Is like increasing that naturally recovery process, right? So exposing people in an objective, safe way to things that remind them of the traumatic event that invoke that fear response um, so that they can learn, okay, hey, like trauma isn't going to happen again. I am safe. I mean, and we can avoid things in our external environment and we can also avoid things in our internal world, like our thoughts, feelings, emotions, I think this is why a lot of folks who have experienced trauma, especially prolonged trauma, will turn to something like substances um, as a way to avoid the memories. We can avo avoid things internally too. And so prolonged exposure is essentially a treatment that helps individuals who have experienced a traumatic event and are like traumatized by that event. So experiencing high symptoms for a long time following that trauma, gradually exposing them to things in their environment that remind them of the trauma but are objectively safe um, as well as internal stuff like the memories of the trauma because over time people can again understandably become so fearful of their memories that they think that they can't sit with the memory mm -hmm. and so they'll drink use substances or sometimes avoidance can look really productive and functional like i'm gonna work 80 hours a week mm. And in our society, that's very much rewarded. Mm -hmm. And so people are like, wow, like you look at you, like you're, you are such a hard worker and you I don't know, have all these businesses and, but really it's, it serves a different function. Such a good point. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's about prolonged exposure is about, um, like safely exposed, helping that person expose themselves to these feared 
things. I mean, that's kind of the older model, but then I don't know, Roger, if you want to talk about the kind of updates to that. Yeah, similar principles. It's just, I think our learning has advanced a little bit. Michelle Krask, who's a, uh, a clinical psychologist researcher out of UCLA, identified uh, a new model, inhibitory learning model. And, and basically, very simply, is that old learning never goes away. So you get exposed to a, a traumatic event. It's not like uh, that gets consolidated in, in our memory and there's no fear around it at all. What happens is there's just this development of new learning uh, and that acts as like an inhibitory kind of learning response. So it's, I almost look at it like it's a break on the acceleration of our body's reaction to a traumatic event. And so, for example, when you do these exposures and you set them up, let's say you were avoiding restaurants, for example, mm -hmm. and you're avoiding restaurants because there's so many people there. You don't know who's dangerous, who can, who can hurt you. And you have to have your back to a wall and facing the exits. And you have to have a plan to get out of there because you've overgeneralized threat to a point where you avoid so many of the situations that are typically part of living free. So you kind of ask the client, what's the feared expectancy? Like, what are you afraid is going to happen? And you really solidify that. And you have to expose them repeatedly over and over again until that, that fear, that, uh, that I, whatever they're afraid is going to happen gets violated, right? So it just doesn't happen. You do it so many times, you're just like creating new learning. Okay, restaurants are generally safe. It's so much different than the, than the situation in which I was traumatized. And it's, that, like, it's just the violation of the feared expectancy repeatedly. And it just speaks to the active nature of these treatments that in PTSD, it's not just coming in and, and speaking about the trauma at your own pace. Right. There's so many other components to it that are in vivo and they're active and there's homework. So a lot of people come in to our center who still have these, these strong symptoms and behaviors of, uh, related to PTSD. And they say they've already gone through counseling. They've already gone through these treatments. And then you, you learn what they went through. And it's just talking about the trauma is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. There are really core interventions around learning, around how they think about it. That can happen effectively in a talk therapy. But then the exposure component whether you're exposing to any situation that's associated with the trauma or the memory itself, it has to be done so actively and, and repetitively over time in order to kind of reduce that strong physiological response. And people aren't always aware mm -hmm. of how active the treatment needs to be. Yep, absolutely. And this goes back to, I think, what we were saying before, how it, it can be not beneficial and at worst harmful um, to 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 not provide treatment and like this trauma-informed uh, awareness or approach or awareness of treatments that work um but it just it it like that story though it it just reminds me like how resilient humans are right like so here is a person who's been through like probably awful things they went to multiple treatments that didn't work and like here they are like showing up again yeah like trying still mm -hmm. like that i think is just like so beautiful or sometimes worse they're often like their symptoms are drugged right so yeah. when we talk about like the importance of creating new learning and we talk about the value of this exposure process people don't understand by trying to take a drug to numb 
that emotional response is incompatible with these effective treatments. And this is what does not make sense to me. Even when you look at researchers who are trying to identify what are effective treatments for PTSD, we don't have any supportive evidence that says any of these psychiatric drugs are actually part of that curative process. In fact, no data exists. But yet it is part of a, uh, from the medical component, that's how they're treating PTSD with drugs that don't fit the model of learning, what we know from neuroscience, nor has there been any clinical trials that would demonstrate their efficacy or long-term safety. Mm-hmm. I think this is a good place to transition to something you brought up, psychedelic treatment for PTSD. Yeah. I'm, I'm so curious, Roger, your opinion on this. Let me just provide the listeners like some context Please. first. So um, there's a big like research group, MAPS. I don't know if I'm going to get the acronym right. It's like Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Maybe, I'm sorry if I butchered that, but they're in, I think, phase three FDA trials for using um, MDMA, which... I think is commonly associated with ecstasy uh, for the treatment of PTSD. And I, and I want to be clear, it's not like they're giving folks this drug and saying like, okay, go off on your way. Like it, it's not this like cure all magic thing. Um, they're, they're giving these folks MDMA in combination with prolonged exposure therapy. I think that the, the actual delivery of MDMA is maybe given like a handful of times, maybe three times. I need to go back on the literature. And the doses might be a little bit lower mm-hmm. than what would be typically experienced on the street. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, and who, like on the street, who knows what you're actually getting? Who knows what the dosage is, right? Like <laughs> that's all just a big mystery. You say you're getting MDMA, but it could be anything. Right. So it's actual MDMA and it's a very specific dose. Um, and folks who are undergoing this treatment are saying that it has allowed them to like come at the exposure from a, a place of like compassion for themselves. Because you can imagine like so many people are turned away from these treatments in the sense that they, they might think like, there's no way I can do this. Like, especially if someone has maybe been understandably avoiding treatment for like 40 years and then they come in here and we're like, we're going to ask you to talk about the trauma like I can understand why people are like, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. There's no way. Um, so the, the drug is meant to assist their, like their willingness to go through a very difficult treatment, uh, with compassion, with kind of like a loving kindness and like connection to themselves and the universe really. Um, and they're seeing some really promising results. Uh, this would not be a like first line treatment from mm-hmm. my understanding. This would be folks who have maybe tried prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy without uh, the use of a psychedelic and um, didn't see the results that they wanted. So this is more for like treatment resistant folks. Um, I, I, they might also be using psilocybin, which is like magic mushrooms. Um, and that has a little bit of a different effect, but I don't, Roger, I'm just so curious what you think about this. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm humbled by you know what we don't know. And so I don't know a whole lot about this. I mean, I've heard most of this like from listening to Joe Rogan podcasts yeah. um, or maybe following some people on social media. So I, I don't have a, a, a knowledge about it, but there are a lot of people who just don't get, don't recover from yeah. our typical treatments. So 
Um, it's just a humility in our field. It's just, hey, if there's new innovative research that can open our minds in a new way to be able to relieve the suffering and improve people's quality of life, I'm all for it. It's just we need really focused and solid research designs and be able to understand what the potential harms or dangers are. And that's where I have a lot of concerns. I don't think people receive informed consent in, in the manner that allows them to be able to choose their course of treatment with, with full understanding of what's going to happen within that process. That's where we need to get better because so much of this research was just industry run and it's been, you know, it's got the, the financial conflicts of interest. And so harms are minimized and, um, you know, the, the expected results of a lot of treatments are just overestimated. Mm -hmm. So as long as if there's new innovative research that's being done, I'm all for it. I just don't know enough about it. And this has been, I mean, it has been done before with LSD in the, in the 60s, with, but they were, it was sociopaths. We talked about that, um, Dr. Elliot Barker, and that, that, was, that, that was, ended up being a disaster. You know what, this is like a, a, a new podcast topic for us down the line. Yeah, before we jump into any of that, um, what about ayahuasca? Because I, I came from Los Angeles. I know people that have tried it. And they talk about the whole shaman thing yeah. and finding someone who can guide you. Yeah. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. I mean, my like my thoughts are just on this are like my own opinion. I don't I'm not familiar of any research mm -hmm. um, like using ayahuasca for PTSD. I, like anecdotally, I know people have had profound experiences on ayahuasca and psilocybin mm -hmm. uh, where they take it once and it seems to have like changed their worldview change their perspective on like very profound things uh, like uh, what seemingly permanently i think um, about the individual who's willing to pursue something like that it's almost like they're open to the possibility of things that most people can't comprehend or understand and it just allows them to experience it in a way that maybe i wouldn't because i i'm kind of like hyper vigilant to begin with i'd be like i don't trust this guy i don't know what's going on here i'm, I'm not gonna just let myself you know, pass out for the next couple hours and binge everything out of my body, like purge. Yeah. Like, that to me just frightens the hell out of me. Like I have found that working with trauma, trauma survivors in particular, um, and I'm not trying to glorify trauma in any way, but um, they are some of like the wisest, most like empathic people that I have ever met. It, it, like it's truly such an honor uh, working with them. And I think about how, like, so we live in the land of relativity, right? Like, I know my coffee is hot because I know what cold is. Um, and so I think about how sometimes if, like, someone can experience such, like, terror and fear, does that somehow then, like, open a path to be able to experience, like, even more, like, love or um, empathy or understanding? And so, like, going back to the ayahuasca or psilocybin experience, like, I, I wonder if that has something to do with it. Yeah, if it, if it somehow then, like, taps into something that, like, maybe someone who didn't experience a trauma, like, couldn't. Mm -hmm. I don't, does that make any sense? It makes a lot of sense to me because um, I experienced the same thing. This post-traumatic growth process that can exist where the development of wisdom along with a, a appreciation for... Uh, for love or the limited nature of, of this lifetime, there's the, there's the Latin phrase, memento more, remember you will die. Mm -hmm. And that is a shift in, in perspective. When you know that your time is, is limited, 
maybe that shift in perspective will allow you to experience life more fully and in, in new ways, even decrease fear of the loss of, of this life. If you've gone through something that's horrific and came out the, the other end, you might just have a whole new shift in perspective and appreciation for what life can be because there's a duality that exists. Can you really experience love if you've never really experienced loss? Because you wouldn't have that comparison or that appreciation for it. A lot of ways we're talking about kind of this spiritual growth and advancement in how we approach our life. And we're talking about different substances or chemicals or natural chemicals or anything that could maybe enhance our ability to kind of connect more fully with the the universe and get outside of the limitations of the human mind. I do think there's other ways to do it even naturally. Um, You know, if you commit to a meditation practice and you get away from the busyness of our mind and you can get into a period of stillness, then you are exposed to this intuitive kind of wisdom. If you pay attention to it, that's there. Um, Other cultures, for example, uh, indigenous cultures or uh, Native Americans, uh, intense heat. So like um, for us in modern day, it's sauna, but um, like in Native Americans, they would have those sweat lodges. And you you can induce almost a psychedelic or psychotic kind of reaction or response where other cultures might view that as a spiritual awakening that gives you a, a greater awareness to every, how everything's connected within us. I think there's fields within, there are fields of study even in uh, clinical psychology that are interesting, like energy psychology, that we are all energy mm-hmm. and how it can be connected with quantum physics and um, other developments that we have in, in our science field. It's endless. And that's why, to me, there has to be humility and an advancement of the science base. If we stay stuck in this categorical identification of a mental illness and it's promoted in society to the degree that it is, not only is that harmful, in my opinion, but it really does interfere with an open-mindedness that would propel new research, new studies. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.